Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is April 18th, 2016, and this is episode 1768 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. It's a listener call show because the listener call show was preempted on Monday, and I did a listener feedback show where I do email responses. Uh, the reason for that was that Thursday, the new Gooses and Baby Ducklings came. So uh, that was a very busy day, and these shows take a lot more prep time, editing time, and just overall are more work than the email response shows. So we did a flip-flop. So we'll we'll keep our word to you, though, and we'll say we're going to do, you know, you're going to do a certain number of shows a month, we're going to get them done. So today we'll be responding to your calls to the Think line, that number 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. I will tell you that we're pretty cleaned out on new calls. Uh, there were several calls that would have been good calls for today that did not get on the air because of not being able to understand the person. Uh, one was a guy that I think is going to recall it in about a website he built. It When he said his own website name, he like fumbled through it. Uh, and a couple other ones. And there's one that's going to be on the air today that will give you an example of a call that barely got through. And it will explain to you why you need to make sure you follow my rules for calls. That is, make sure you're in a quiet location. If you're on a cell phone, make sure you have multiple bars on your on your signal. So if you're breaking up, it's a recording. There's no way for us to you know, somebody to tell you that you can't be heard well. Speak slowly, especially when you're giving out names, websites, things like that. Be very deliberate with that so that we can hear them and we can put them on the air. And, uh, again, make sure you know what you're going to ask when you call or what you're going to say when you call. Do it quick concise, one or two sentences maximum, then give details. It'll go better, I promise you. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, one that's not a call. I'm going to talk about the flooding in Texas. A lot of you guys have been asking me, are we okay? We're fine. Um, this Most of the stuff is south of Austin, down towards Houston, where the really, really heavy rain is. I think we've gotten like six inches. I don't think that's the official number. But I have these things called kiddie pools for the ducks that have sat out there empty. And a few mile rain totals, and we've gotten about six inches of rain. That's a lot of rain. Swells are overfilling. It is a great week to be a duck at the Spearco Farm. But there's a lot of other things going on that are not so great with flooding. Also, some earthquakes and typhoons going on out there. Not in America, but uh, natural disasters. It should all be on all of our radar to think about how we would deal with them. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. I got a, a, a caller that has some low-value white pine trees on a property that need to go so that you can free up space to do some gardening and other homesteading activities. He wants to know what the heck to do with them. And then they are a low-value tree. Uh, they're pretty much grown for the paper industry and for low-value lumber, and there's probably not any money in them. So what do you do with that? We'll talk about some ideas for that. I've got a Leo that responded again to my view on videoing the police with a different take than the last time a law enforcement officer uh, responded. This is going to be the call where you're like, yeah, I can see why Jack doesn't put some calls on the air, but I thought it was so important we'll kind of struggle through the some breakup in it. But really important, you guys, get good cell signal when you're making a call and keep your mouth in one place when you talk to your phone. Don't turn your head and stuff like that. It hurts. But uh, he has a totally different view on videoing and uh, kind of backs up what I've said. So we're going to hear from him. 
uh, have somebody called in about minimum wage and how it might actually be a plan to push people off of welfare and different forms of government support, and it may at least work for that, even though he's not in favor of it. I'll tell you why that's not going to happen. I'm going to tell you why that's just not going to work at all. Um, we're going to talk about dealing with slugs. Somebody asked me about using iron phosphate in a product called Worry-Free Slug uh, Bait, and is it safe? And if there's an alternative of dealing with slugs, you know, eating like all your food, uh, and when you don't have another way to get rid of them, what can you do? I have some thoughts on that. Uh, we're going to get another example of schools lying to parents and basically telling their kids to lie to them. Yeah. What's going on? Don't worry, it won't be a Jack blowing a gasket uh, rant. It's just going to be something I want you guys to know. Somebody called in about, and it's something that we're, we're entering a point now where you can't trust the public school, government schools anymore. You can't. You can't trust anything they say. You need to. You need to verify, not trust, but verify. Like the old Soviet, uh, the Russian saying that, that Reagan so famously quipped, right? It's not trust, but verify. It's distrust, therefore verify. That's how you have to handle schools from now on. And I think. I don't think this one will shock you, but it'll reinforce that. And a lot of you guys are parents. You need to know this stuff. You need to know what's going on. Uh, we're going to talk about best practices when we're growing trees in like raised beds when we're going to want to dig them up later and plant them somewhere else. And I'll tell you why. You should only be doing it if that's the only choice you have or if you're doing it because you're going to be selling them or something like that. And I'll tell you exactly how to do that the right way. Uh, we're going to also have a guy called in about his one of his friends – basically has asked him to become a professional gardener for him. Now, that wouldn't be enough to, to, to build a business on it in itself, but it's something that would have the potential to become a business. And his real question is, how do I set price? So I'm going to say that last one, guys, even though it is a gardening-oriented question, it's not a gardening question. It's a business question. A lot of you guys... They're looking to start businesses. You really need to pay attention to my answer on this one because you can tell that the person's coming at it the way that almost everybody does when they think about starting up a business. And it's completely backwards. And it's, I'm not putting the guy down. Okay. It's that we don't get taught these things in school. We really don't. I'm, people come out of college and they're not taught the way to think about this. We're, we're, you might know, go to college and take marketing or, or business management, and you might get some thoughts on pricing curves and things like that as part of the philosophy. You might even get a relatively good education on things like that. But they don't teach you how to do it from a standpoint of being an entrepreneur into a brand new market for you and figuring out, well, how do I price my product or service? We're going to talk about that today at the end. And then I have, as our final uh, segment, our song of the day, I have a song from Jimmy Buffett that unless you're a fan of Jimmy Buffett, you've probably never heard. It says a lot about a philosophy in life, and I think you'll really like it, even if you're not into that type of music, if you give it a chance. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Before we do that, let's go ahead and get into looking at the year that was the episode. I have uh, two from Alex Shrug today, 1768 being the year, because that's the episode. These are at tspwiki.com. I have Captain Cook's Journey to the Undiscovered Country, Really interesting. You may want to read that one for yourself. There'll be a link in today's show notes because I'm going to read No Liberty, No King. And I'm going to read this because we're entering the prelude to the American Revolution here. And this is not about the American Revolution. But it does show you how the concerns of the colonists prior to the Revolution were not unique to the colonists here in America or even colonists within the British Empire, but subjects to the king within 
the confines of the island of Great Britain. No liberty, no king. It's a massacre as British troops fire into the crowd. Six are dead, 15 are wounded. It's not Boston, it's London. The roots of this riot began in 1763 when John Wilkes published an article that was critical of King George III. The actual offense was sedition. It was implied, but obvious enough. The king issued a general warrant and people were swept up, including Wilkes. Wilkes was a member of Parliament, so he argued successfully that he retained his free speech rights. He went right on publishing. Parliament then moved to expel Wilkes from the Commons, so he fled the country. He was forced to return this year after he ran out of money. He's now in prison, but his supporters have been gathering in protest, shouting, No liberty, no king. They are read the riot act and ordered to disperse. They refuse. Out come the muskets, and you know the rest. My take by Alex Shrugged. John Wilkes ran a campaign from his London prison for a Bill of Rights. Essentially, he wanted to outlaw bribery in Parliament. Outrageous. He supported the American No Taxation Without Representation campaign, and he called for full and equal representation of the people. The basics, after he was released, he was appointed sheriff in London. When researching what a general warrant was, I found it was an 1867 law allowing customs officials to demand assistance from local sheriffs in smuggling investigations. That included rounding up, quote, the usual suspects, end quote, and rummaging through people's stuff looking for contraband. Thanks goodness that doesn't happen anymore. Oh, wait, can you say New York stop and frisk? Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that we, we still have this misguided belief in our society, that rights come from government rather than government is charged with the protection of our rights. That that you know whether or not government does it successfully is not what I'm talking about debating. I'm talking about that's the way that this country was supposed to be set up. That you as an individual and you had God given rights, and you could be an atheist and that can still apply to you because the concept of God given rights by our founding wasn't that. You know, the Christian God gave you rights, or the, you know, the, the Muslim God gave you rights, or the, the, the shamanic gods of, uh, gave you rights, or whatever it was. Your existence as a human being is, in one way or another, a creation. And you can believe whatever you want about how that works, but by your very existence, that's what that, it might be better termed that way rather than God-given rights, but by your existence, you inherently have rights. If you notice, the Declaration of Independence was an immensely inclusive document. It wasn't about us. It was about the whole world and how that pertained to our situation. It was universal. It was designed to be so. And when you hear people talk about, well, when the U.S. is dealing with people outside of our own borders, the Constitution does not apply because they're not citizens, that's backwards. The Constitution applies to humans. You have constitutional rights when dealing with our government, no matter where you are. You're supposed to, anyway. But you don't. Often don't. In fact, even our own citizenry is often abused by our own government, and their rights denied. As though it's complicated to understand words like shall not. Like there's any question as to what those mean in legal language in any other document. The more things change, the more they stay the same. My take by Jack Spierko. Next up, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, 
Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Fortress Defense Consultants offers tactical training, including rifle, pistol, tactical shotguns, specialized classes for women, force-on-force engagement training, and you can even do customized training with them. They will also travel to your location for larger groups, Find out more at FortressDefense.com. With that, just a, with that, just a quick reminder, you can vote for the Tuesday shows for next month. It'll be here quicker than you think. There's ten of them. You pick the top five that you want, and the winners will be the Tuesday shows, which, of course, are the standalone Just Jack teaching shows. And there's a bunch of great topics. Get on over and vote. There's still plenty of time. Uh, it's anybody's race at this case, so to speak, and uh, your vote really does count. You do have to vote at the TSP forum for your vote to count, though. That is our polling procedure. With that, I want to go ahead and play this for you. This is off a segment called The Lift. It's on the Weather Channel. And I'm going to come back and talk about this issue and some other things and how it should be making us think about our general preparedness. In Houston right now, life-threatening flooding is taking place with numerous water rescues underway. And unfortunately, this situation looks to only get worse as we go through the day. Just in the past six hours, here's all the rain that we've been looking at. Now, this is from a stalled-out system. So check out these rain totals. Over seven inches just to the northwest of Houston. We're seeing even totals coming in over the eight-inch mark. So flash flooding is happening and will continue throughout the day. Here's a look at the rainfall to come through Tuesday morning. We could see an additional five to eight, up to an additional foot. Slow-moving thunderstorms will be moving across the area today, and they could dump rainfall rates between three to four inches per hour. So that's what's going on here in, in the United States right now as far as natural disasters, some of the worst of the worst. And, and frankly, as bad as it is, it ain't all that bad compared to some of the other things that are going on. Right uh, this last weekend, we had an earthquake in Ecuador that killed an awful lot of people. There were two earthquakes in Japan uh, that didn't have anywhere near the death toll, but still injured, killed a lot of people, did a lot of damage. It's going to be a long time digging out and return, a recovery. Additionally, right now off the coast of Africa and Madagascar is a Category 5 cyclone that is the most powerful storm observed on the planet at the moment and one of the most powerful ever observed. And it may or may not cause severe damage at landfall. Right now it looks like it'll probably brisk, uh, kind of brush Madagascar and head south and kind of peter itself out in the ocean. But, you know, it may not. So why do I bring this up? Well, for a couple different reasons. Number one... It just reinforces why we need to be prepared. To be blunt, folks, shit happens. Uh, those of you that have been turned on to this show by your friend who you think is kind of a wacky prepper survivalist type, they're not a wacky prepper survivalist type. This is the type of thing they're preparing for. And I know what you're thinking. Well, that's Madagascar. That's Houston, Texas. That's, that's Ecuador. That's Japan. Those are just places. This type of thing happens everywhere, and wherever you are, there are certain things that are inherently more likely to occur where you are than certain things that are less likely to occur where you are. But you know what these all have in common? The same thing we prepare for in all disasters, and that is they, they, they cause failures of systems of support. Uh, East Fort Worth, Texas right now is dealing without water due to uh, issues with broken water main. So that, that seems like a minor inconvenience until you don't have water. Then all of a sudden it's a big pain in the ass when it's you that don't have water. 
And when it's just East Fort Worth, and yeah, you can just run down to the store and buy some bottled water. And since it's a small geographic area, if the local store is sold out a little bit longer of a drive, you can get a couple cases of bottled water. It's, it's not a disaster, but it's a pain in the ass inconvenience. Well, if you're a prepper, it's not even an inconvenience. Because, I mean, one of the cheapest and easiest things we could ever be storing is some water. I mean, for the price we pay for it, you might as well call it free. And it's usually there, so store some of it when it's there. You just have to really look around you to see the reasoning behind why we prepare. I also have some other comments in, in, in regard to the Weather Channel as a tool for knowing whether or not you're in danger, pun not intended. Um, this fall, 2015, IBM purchased the digital assets that are Uh, weather.com and some other websites. So they don't own the Weather Channel, but now they own the Weather Channel website and the digital assets like the app, etc. And this has caused a change for the worse. It's bad enough that we have to have dancing clowns trying to sell us mortgages all the time at the Weather Channel, but you know what? They have to make money. They, they really do. But one of the things that kept me using the Weather Channel, or I'm sorry, Weather.com and its app for many years, in spite of the amount of in-your-face adware climbing, was an acceptance that, yes, they have to make a profit, and two, that it was exceptional for one thing, the radar maps and the real-time delivery of severe weather warnings. So you could just click a button to say show existing warnings within the map that you had up, and it would show you strong, you know, storm warnings, tornado watches, tornado warnings. And it would show you actually where, the, where that was. So if you have a tornado warning here in Texas, that's a big deal. And you could see where that tornado was, and you could see a, a box, uh, usually kind of a trapezoidal shape with a, a path that that storm was taking as of right now with you know, a margin of error on both sides of it. And it was extremely useful to be able to monitor what the hell was going on around you. And the number one way that you stay alive in these severe weather events is to be aware. Well, that all disappeared this, this spring. It just went away, and it's part of this IBM thing. Another thing that went away was Dr. Greg Forbes and his Torcon index. Torcon index is one of the best indicators of your risk of tornado as a storm system approaches, then is there certain setups in the atmosphere? And the way Torcon works is a simple percentage thing. If you have a Torcon of three, then there's a 30% chance during that forecasted time that there will be a tornado within 50 miles of your location. So it's not a 30% chance you'll get hit. It's a 30% chance they'll be somewhere within 50 miles of you. That does a lot to help you think about how prepared you really need to be. Because when you see sixes, sevens, and eights sometimes, you realize this is a serious system you need to be prepared for. They have pushed Forbes out of that, so he's still with Weather Channel as far as the TV show, but no longer associated with the digital assets. So I don't have any, any uh, active radar that's as good about showing you instantly where the storm warnings are uh, as, as the Weather Channel's old one is. My local Fox affiliate and local NBC affiliate have apps, and they do show that information, but there's so much crap on the map that you can't remove as layers, it's hard to see exactly what's going on. There's too, they're too busy. And that's what was great about Weather Channel. You could turn down the opacity. You could you had complete control. Um, in addition, they had the Torcon. I will tell you how to get the Torcon back. You go to Facebook, 
and you like Dr. Greg, Greg Forbes's page on Facebook and you set his notifications to show at the top of your feed, I talked about that last time, but when you click like on Facebook uh, for a page uh, and some other features on Facebook that you can associate with, it will change from like to liked. And if you hover over where it says liked, you have the ability to say in your news feed, see this person's post or this page post first or as default by basically Facebook's algorithm. Set that to first so that you remember to keep checking on it. And Greg now uh, provides maps with a kind of rough drawn thing like you would do in MS Paint or something like that that actually is better than the Torcon was on the Weather Channel even though it looks more low tech because it actually shows you what, when he says North Texas, well what the hell does that mean? Right, and where's where does it change from a two to a four? That's all on his website. And I'll tell you what, I think we're going to see Doctor Forbes end up doing something on his own that's going to be really valuable to us in storm prep because he's being very good about taking feedback. For instance, he was doing these maps, and he would just call it Tuesday or Thursday or whatever. And there are tons of them in his photos now, and it gets kind of jumbled. And you don't necessarily know which one you're looking at what day. So I just made a simple comment to Dr. Forbes. I deal with this too. I know every little additional thing's a big deal. But could you start actually putting the date, so Thursday 421, for instance, on it? The next day they started doing that with their maps. And I got a feeling, by the way, this is done. This is something he's personally doing. I don't think he has anybody doing this for him. Because these are not like super spiffy graphics or whatever. They're like, again, freehand drawn bubbles, and then, you know, this is a two, this is a four, the chance is severe, very low, whatever, and showing you kind of that. So that is a great tool for those of you that live in tornado country, which is about half the country. And uh, it's a shame what's going on with Weather Channel. Let me tell you why. I have figured out really, really quick, as soon as I looked into it, why. The, 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 the company that bought Weather.com and all the digital assets is IBM. So I thought, well, IBM's going to go into the media business and just keep shoving more clowns at us to, to tell us to refinance. And they've done some of that. But that's IBM's a company that thinks big. Here's what they're doing. They are improving what they already had while reducing the quality of what they provide on the website to people like you and me. And they are looking to develop premium packages with technology that sheriff's departments, et cetera, can use to get all this val valuable information in real time so that, that cities and towns and, and counties can better prepare to deal with these disasters. But at the same time, they're, they're taking that information from the people who need it most, the ones in the path of the storm. And I have to say, I, I wouldn't have a problem with them you know, offering that feature set to all of us at even a price. Because people, to do work, you do have to charge. But what they've done is they've stripped it. They've made it kind of worthless so that they can sell to people that, you know, have government money, which means we're paying for it. That's what it means. And uh, I'd suggest that everybody should go to weather.com and click on the thing where you can send them feedback and tell them to bring back the damn warning so that we know whether or not we're in real danger. They probably won't listen, but you never know. You just never know. But at least now you do know why that change was made. If it's kind of confused you as to why, you can no longer pull up that map and just click Show Active Warnings and Watches.
because it's more important to them that they sell that to a government organization that you are paying for than to give you access to that information. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day. Hey, Jack, this is Lucas in Northern Illinois. Hey, man, I had a question in regards to pine trees, specifically white pines. Um, uh, just some background. So I live on uh, eight acres, uh, seven of which is uh, heavily wooded. Um, one acre of the wooded area is pine trees um, that were, you know, monoculture clearly laid out by the owner. Um, I'm just wondering the usefulness of those pine trees from a per- permaculture to survival standpoint. Um, the reason being is I'm looking to um, expand my garden, and those pine trees are taking a valuable area in regards to, uh, you know, sun aspect. Um, and I'm thinking about taking about half of them out. Um, and I'm kind of wondering from, you know, a cost-benefit standpoint, um, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, I think it makes sense for me, but um, uh, just want to know if, if, if there's something I'm missing as far as the value of them other than maybe I can't burn them. Um, I know the sap has got some uses, and then the pine needles make a decent mulch, but beyond that, is there anything you can add? Thank you, sir. Love the show. Appreciate uh, any feedback you can provide. Okay, if I if I had this person on the air live, the first question I would ask that I was not given an answer to here, uh, and this is for everybody, it would be really important to know how large are they. That would be really because if these trees were planted ten years ago, uh, and in general the diameter of them is you know twelve inches, thirteen inches, substantial trees. But there's absolutely no way you get any bored lumber out of that. You have truly trash trees. I mean, even a paper company is not really going to want them. And if you did get a paper company to come get them, they'd pay you next to nothing for them, and they wouldn't want to take half of them out unless you mean clear-cut half the stand. And it's probably not enough to get them to do that. They'd want a larger tree on the stump. If they are... Large enough for board length cutting, white pine is not the best lumber, but it's not bad. And it may be marketable uh, with a company that would come cut it, take it down, and pay you a timber value on it. Again, not a really huge amount of money, but they're not that valuable as a bunch of trees laying on the ground. They just aren't. I know what everybody out there is thinking, hoogle beds, hoogle beds. Okay, we're talking about a lot of trees. And we're not talking about the best material for hoogles, and a lot more work than most people think of when it comes to building them, and a lot more work maintaining them than this, I'm thinking this guy wants to do. I mean, you put in an acre of hoogles, you're talking Sepp holds here, 70 degree angle, two meter high hoogles, you've got a farm. Now, you could do that. That could make sense here. But but the guy that has to do the work and pay for it and maintain it has to decide that that makes sense. You could use them as pole timber, uh, meaning that you fell them, you buck them to certain lengths, and you put them somewhere, and then they're basically dry cured and used as poles. So you could do like build pole barns and log type structures out of them and things like that. Again, it has to come back to what you really want to do with them and how large they are and how practical this is. I will tell you this. Do not underestimate how much work this is going to be. Um, you know, when you look at an acre, a half acre of trees, you think, well, that's not that big an area. When they're pine trees that are planted, the way these sound like they're planted, and they're planted very close to each other, it's a lot of material. And if you're going to do this yourself, it would probably make a lot of sense 
if they're smart, small enough to dig around and push over, you can do a lot with a small excavator. I'm talking 7,500 to 12,000 pounds range with a grabber where you can push them over, and then once you push them over, you can pick them up, and then you can take a chainsaw and drop the root ball and drop the slash off the top and bucket and then stack it with the excavator. That's, that's one way you could do that. If they're not able to be pushed and, and handled that way with an excavator, and you're probably not going to be able to lease an excavator much larger than the class that I just talked about. So while there are the machines out there that will do this like nobody's business, you're probably not qualified to run one, and you probably couldn't get one if you wanted to. You need some sort of a company to come in and be able to use a machine like that. And that's, again, toward your timber paper companies that would be able to do that for you. But another way you could go, because it is doable, it's not so huge that it's not doable, would be to fell the trees with a chainsaw, buck them to manageable size, leave them where they lay, then go buy, go rent that small excavator and use it to move them, stack them, and put them into whatever configuration you want. Because if you try to do that manually, it will wear your ass out. And it will totally be worth $500 to $1,500 to have an excavator there for four or five days to do that work. And if you're doing just what I just said there versus digging them out, pushing them over, that type of thing, and grubbing out stumps, if you're just going to fell them and move them, It, you only need a few days to do that uh, with that type of machine for that amount of stuff. What could you do with them? There's there's a lot you could do. You could do a pseudo-hoogle arrangement. So you, 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 you fell your trees or you grub them out, whatever it is. Grubbing means you actually use a machine to actually pull the stumps up. And then you got these big stumps. They're a problem, too. You may want to just cut them flush as you can and leave them in the ground. But then go into this area, mark out your contours, And then basically lay your logs on contour and use them more as like a terrace development. But then you got to look at your slope. These trees are going to rot over time. Are you creating something that's stable or are you creating something that as those trees rot, you're actually going to have the potential for them to come down great on you? Because you don't want to do hoogle swales here at all. Don't do it, especially with wood like this. Um, you could certainly use them to build you know, log-like structures for livestock. Uh, stuff that where you're not trying to be airtight and chink it all in like a log cabin. I'm talking about, you know, three-sided structures for hogs and stuff like that, but it's probably not what you're wanting to do. Um, they probably don't warrant the investment in uh, like a bandsaw uh, uh, sawmill type thing. Uh, you're probably not going to want to try to do these with like one of these cheap, you know, low-end chainsaw sawmills. Though if you were going to do a wood with chainsaw sawmill, pine would be the way to go. It's relatively soft. Here's the key with that, though. That means you need to be felling and boarding right away. They're easy, pine is easy as pie to cut when it's green. As it gets, you know, dried out, it gets more and more difficult to cut. It's still a very soft wood, but when you're trying to run... 12 feet with a chainsaw and then do it again and you're going to still end up with a lot of slash. The board value of this stuff, even if it's big enough to get a good amount out of it, is probably not worth hiring someone that does that for a living. There are people that will come to your house and sawmill all your lumber for you with a bandsaw sawmill. Um, but again, it's white pine. You'd have to look at what it costs versus, well, what if I went out and bought that lumber? And if you would buy it for less than you can produce it for, 
then it doesn't make sense. Now, if we're talking red oak or something, you're talking high-value wood. So you got to kind of figure that out. Does it make sense to remove? What are your goals? How much of it do you need to remove? I don't have a big problem removing something like white pine because it doesn't do that much for us, ecologically speaking. Um, leaving some stands of it and stuff is bigger trees. It can have some timber value. Uh, it does have some ecological value. There's a reason it exists. It's not like it's a weed tree like some people make out. There's a purpose to it. But when we monoculture with it, we get a very uh, we get a very blah ecosystem in straight just pine. We, we really do. You don't see acres and 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 ongoing forever just pine in nature. You see clumps of pine with mixed hardwoods in, in natural settings uh, and a lot of diversity interplanted and you don't see them at the tight spacings and all the same age. I mean, that's another part of the problem with monocultured pine. There are very large stands of natural pine, but they're in different ages and that creates different points of climax and different segments where they fall out and then hardwood success in. When we create this artificial environment, it's a much more difficult thing. So I don't have a great answer for you uh, is the, the long way around getting there. Those are some things that you can consider. I would say this. Consider clearing as much as you need and not more because it may be the case that you're creating more of a problem for yourself than a solution. You can do some mushroom cultivation with pine, but not much. Like I think it's like uh, chicken of the woods, the orange mushrooms that grow on softwood stumps, but... You know, they're a great mushroom, but they're not that high value. So really think about how you're going to handle this. There was also some point in there where you faded out, and I don't know what you said. So I missed some part of that call. Folks, you kind of know what I'm talking about toward the end there, uh, right before you said you can't burn them. Um, as far as burning them, <laughs> it could end up that you're going to have to burn some of it. So I'm not sure why you said you can't burn them, because if you grub them out, you're going to have a ton of stumps. And even if you drop them for pole lumber, you're going to end up with a lot of that top thin spindly stuff that's slash, and it's it's not much good for anything. If they were really young trees, you know, like as big around as your forearm, well, then what you do is easy. Then you get the chainsaw out and start dropping the shit out of them, bucking them up, and you go get your ass a giant, big like tree company size uh, chipper shredder. For a day, it'll probably cost you about eight hundred dollars to rent one for a day. Believe it or not, the type I'm talking about, not something you tow with a truck, and you make yourself the biggest mulch pile you ever seen in your life. And then you have something with some value to it, and then you put it right back where it was. And I, I might even get rid of it all and plant hardwoods in there and let them success uh, back into it and leave those stumps in the ground and let them rot. And that's like in ground to a culture, and that works. So if you want to call back, this is an interesting problem. A lot of people have it. Ben Falk just dealt with this with red pine that has no timber value for a client. They had a very low budget, and in the end, they just sold it to the paper company, even though that was not the best use of it. It was the only use that made sense. So common thing, more details would help. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Austin in Central Texas. I'm calling about law enforcement. Uh, just to give you a little background, I've been listening to your show for about two years now, and I've been in law enforcement for about three, uh, three and a half years now. And I just wanted to give a comment on your uh, your discussions the past couple uh, go-arounds. Um, I 100% agree. 
I will tell you that. I'm tired of this conversation going around in law enforcement and people being against the camera. I can't personally tell you how many times the body camera that I wear has saved me against false complaints. Um, I think that, like you said, people interfering need to, uh, need to be dealt with accordingly. And if you're compromising my safety, that's how I feel. But you're 20, 30 feet away from me, for the camera, that doesn't mean sure that's good evidence. And that's going to clear me of any wrongdoing. Um, I think that people, law enforcement especially, need to stop looking at the camera as a hindrance and looking at it as our friend because it's not going to show me doing anything I shouldn't. It's simply going to clear me of any misconduct that is falsely claimed. Um, thank you for everything you do. Uh, thank you for changing my mind uh, on a lot of stuff. And so that was the call. Um, it sounded like wind. It sounded like maybe beard rubbing against a phone. It sounded like head turning. It sounded like phone modulating out. Um, because I felt this call was so important to play, I played it anyway. But when you guys hear me talk about a call I can't use, this is the type of thing I'm talking about. I do the chainsaw motorcycle, you know, warning because it kind of drives the point home. In general, I'm not really serious about that, though I've heard a leaf blower in the back of a couple calls here and there. Um, but generally, it's stuff like this, just so you guys are aware. Okay, anyway, I get the point. This is a law enforcement officer who says the camera is not our enemy unless we're doing something wrong. And I know that people say, well, how would you turn that around, Jack? How would you like it if the government was filming you and, and what have you? Am I in a public place, especially being paid with public money? Well, then that's fine. You want to fill me in my house, that's not none of your damn business. It's a totally different thing. And so it's not about, you know, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. It's not that type of thing the other way around, the government surveilling us. It's us surveilling government. It should be totally okay for us to surveil the government. We pay for it. It's ours. They are our representatives. We are not their servants. And I'll actually point out something that I think law enforcement officers need to think about. The more cameras being pointed at you in the completion of your duty, the better off you are. Because I will say that one thing that this gentleman says that's not 100% true, and I don't mean that he's being deceitful, I mean he's just being overly optimistic, is that a body camera, etc., doesn't always really show you everything. And the more views you have of something... The more ways you can look at it, the more you can really tell what actually happened. Not so much in these drawn-out things where cops are yelling at people and clearly in the wrong or clearly in the right. We're talking about the fast-paced takedown or something like that. Did the person really do something that looked threatening, what have you? And I'll explain it to you in a very simple way that should make it understandable for everybody, including some of you police officers that don't like this idea. The NFL instant replay, throw the flag, challenge. How many times those of you that watch football are like, that guy was in, that was the touchdown, that ball was not coming loose, you're sure of it. You see a different camera angle and you either go, woohoo, because you were against that team, or damn it, because you were for that team, but now you know whether you want it to be that way or not because of a different angle what really happened. And that really is the case. I'll tell you another thing, I am... I haven't come out with a recommendation for a dash cam yet. I have one I'm not totally excited about. I'm looking for like the best one I can find that's also affordable, and I'm going to come out with an official recommendation on one soon because I think that it's the most valuable thing we can do as citizens to protect ourselves and other citizens. And I don't think it's just to deal with 
a bad cop or a good cop. I think it's to deal with anything, being in a wreck. And the person says, I did not come into his lane. Well, the camera says she did, right? Or he came into my lane, and they're the ones that get hurt, and you never did, and now they're trying to sue you. See, I think cameras are fine as long as we control them. It's when government starts controlling cameras and pointing them at private property that I have a problem. That, that's where I have a problem. But when it comes down to it, when you have a public servant being paid with public money to do the public's business, the public has every right to film them. And again, just like, and it kind of got garbled there, I'm not saying you police officers are out there saying, well, these people with cameras are getting in our way of doing our job and shit. I can have a camera, or I can have poop on a stick, or I can have a lollipop in my mouth. If I'm actually interfering with your investigation, the camera's irrelevant. In fact, you should be very pleased about the fact that I'm holding a camera while I'm interfering with your investigation, because interfering with an investigation of a police officer is a crime. So if you have somebody actually interfering with you, then you should just arrest them. And then when they say, well, I got it on video, so that's great, we'll be entering that as evidence. If you're right, officers, that's how simple this is. Well, I've got to take care of this thing, and this person said, you know what, you're going to deal with shit like that anyway. It's just a reality. But we've seen way too many times people with a camera not interfering and police claiming that they are. And that's why they won't arrest them. They're trying to intimidate them. Let me tell you, cops, your job's not to intimidate. It's to serve and protect. I know they took that off a lot of your cars. You guys want to be real oath keepers? Some of you guys need to be lobbying your own institutions, your own chiefs, etc. Hey, guys. Hey, chief. Why don't we put it back on the car so we all remember it? My thoughts on that one. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I have a comment about New York State raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, it's not about um, raising the minimum wage for government workers. It is about kind of walking to freedom because the people who will be leaving aren't going to be the producers. It's going to be the welfare class. When they raise it to $15 an hour, and understand it's not instant. It's only in New York City, and it's in the year 2019. Anything north of Westchester County is by the year 2021, and it will be 1250 It's about pulling welfare. Now, I'm not a socialist. I'm not saying this is a good thing. What I'm saying is it's a government that can't afford these benefits anymore. So they're going to force the people that are on corporate welfare, what I mean by that, people work at Walmart for less amount of money, so they qualify for government benefits, will no longer qualify for government benefits. So when you push them up above that threshold, now they're paying more taxes because New York State is running out of money. It's hemorrhaging money. It's, you know, they pay more taxes. They no longer qualify for subsidized health care food stamp, for all these other benefits. It is all about getting people off the rolls. Now, when I say it's not about you know, walking to freedom, which that guy said, these people will be leaving New York because they no longer can afford to stay. So they'll be flocking to the lesser states that they could take their job that they have at wherever, transfer it down there, and then keep their benefits. So I just want to see, uh, Jack, what you think about that little idea. 
Thanks, man. Bye. Nice theory, but let me explain several reasons why it won't hold water at all. First and foremost, as I've said over and over and over again, and people just don't seem to get it through their thick skulls, there are very few people currently making minimum wage. When you look at the total number of workers to the total number of people paid minimum wage, it's a very, very low number. I gave the stats before, so I won't do it again, but we're talking single digits as a percentage of the total number of people employed. That's that's number one. Okay, So there's just not that many of them. And if you take out all the people that don't qualify for welfare, because if they are getting welfare, they're on their parents' welfare, like still as, as minors, because they're kids working part-time and stuff like that, the number actually gets cut in half yet again. So it's a very small segment. And someone else said it's not about raises. I had another call that was really garbled, that they're a contractor and their wages haven't gone up that much. And it's about CPI and all this stuff. And that's how they – I'm sorry, you're not a government union worker, okay? You're not a government union worker with a base salary that is tied to minimum wage. And it's part of why you've gotten such a small increase, okay? And it's tied to not your state's minimum wage but the federal minimum wage, which hasn't moved. Moving the federal minimum wage up is absolutely being supported by the unions because many unions, specifically government unions, will get raises in their base salaries, especially for new workers that are negotiating a new salary and existing kind of middle management workers that have standard salaries will have a wage increase, and it's part of their contracts. I've verified this. Don't tell me it's not true. But this theory that, okay, these people that live in New York that now have minimum wage go up are going to then move somewhere that has a lower minimum wage so they can keep a low-end job, so they can keep government housing or whatever, is, is false. The first thing that we already have seen where this has occurred is there's been instances where employees simply work less hours. So it doesn't matter what you make per hour. It's how much you make per week, per month, per year in qualifying. So what you'll see, and employers happy to do it because that pushes those employees to a point where they don't qualify for health care benefits anymore, is they'll have more people working less hours. And so that's one way this gets done. But the other thing is people have this belief that our government is somehow hyperly competent with actually determining whether or not a person really makes as much money as they say they do in qualifying for benefits. I can tell you flat out there are plenty of people out there that are collecting benefits that I know people that have attempted to acquire those benefits that make nine, ten, eleven, twelve dollars an hour and are told they don't qualify. And then I turn around and see that the people that do qualify, they get qualified a very simple way. They lie. They lie about how much money they make. They underreport their money. You don't turn in tax returns for this stuff. They just say I make this much. And a lot of them say they make this much, they never get reviewed, or when they do, they just say, yeah, I still only make this much. A lot of the people that are in this position where they qualify for benefits that do have jobs, the way it's working is they have an unmarried couple, and one of them's a high-wage earner, but they don't get married, so the other person is the one that qualifies. And if it comes down to it, they'll just find a job that pays less by working less hours. They're not going to leave where they live. And they're not going to give up their benefits. It's not going to go away. And if you did raise the federal minimum wage, it would be no time at all 
before inflation would require that the new levels that are considered poverty-level income would be the new minimum wage. If you raise the minimum wage, if you had your fight for 15 and it worked, and you set a federal minimum wage of $15 an hour, in a relatively short period of time, the growing pains would be adjusted to and gotten over as far as the employers are concerned, faster than most libertarian-minded people would admit. The problem would be the aftermath. The problem would be, what would happen is the standard of living would come up very briefly for everybody, and $15 an hour would become the new $8 an hour. And all of the people that are in excess of that right now are actually the ones that would be hurt by it. So if you don't have a fancy union tied to minimum wage salary that adjusts based on that, and you're just an average worker even a government one, and you make a salary equivalent to $20 an hour, and we raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, your effective wage over a year or two would deteriorate to being worth about what $15 an hour is worth today, and $15 an hour would deteriorate to being worth about 8 bucks. This is how economics work. And this is impossible to explain to the average person in America today. Not you guys that listen to this show, but the people that are out supporting people like Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and saying, we need this, we deserve this, we deserve a raise. If you deserve a raise, go get a job that pays more. If you're, if you deserve it, you can go find something that pays more. And again, I want to kind of point this out to you just because people don't believe it when I say it. In 2015, the total number of people employed in this country is 121.5 million. Let's call it 121 million. Of that 121 million, 3 million people in this country either make minimum wage or because there's some sort of uh, loophole in what they're doing make below minimum wage. 3 million people, minimum wage, 121 million people making a salary something above minimum wage. That means about 2% of people in this country make minimum wage. 2% of those employed make minimum wage. Again, one more time, just to beat it through the thick skull, 2% of people in America are making minimum wage. We're having this debate over 2% of the people that work for a living in some capacity. If we assume half of those people are people that really should be making minimum wage, part-timers, teenagers, things like that, then we're talking about 1% of American workers that are of an age and a, a skill set where they should be making beyond minimum wage in some way aren't. And, and we believe that those 1 million people can't figure out how. I, I'm sorry. And you know what this tells us? By not raising minimum wage, we have made it largely irrelevant. We've made it largely irrelevant. The market has raised what is minimum to pay people, to above the federal minimum. That's why so many dadgone people out there make more than minimum wage right now, even though they're in low-level jobs. And the reason they're not making more is because of other problems, not the minimum wage problems, overall economic lack of growth, overall faltering of the system as a whole, crushing debt. These are the problems that are affecting wages, not a number the government tells you you have to pay somebody. Because if you don't fix the economy so that my business can earn more revenue and you tell me I have to pay people more, all you've said is, Jack, you have to employ less people and get more done with less people. That's not good for the employment numbers, is it?
So why? To get people off of welfare? No. The reason why, again, is simple. It's a populist statement that people think they can get elected with and buy political clout with. They know it makes no economic sense. But if you work for a, a, a government union, you stand to have a significant increase in the next time you bargain with. And again, I heard from another person that said, you know, they work for the government. That's not true, whatever. The reason you haven't been able to use it as a bargaining chip in negotiations is it ain't happening so damn long. That's why your leadership wants it to happen. That's the truth. And until someone can show me that my numbers are wrong, that anything I've given you is incorrect with facts, not opinion, I'm telling you guys this is the way it is. Let's take another one. Jack, hi. Uh, I've got a question. Is um, ferric phosphate bad for soil life? Um, I've got a pretty significant slug and snail uh, population here uh, that I can't control with chickens uh, because my chickens can't get to my garden right now. Um, anyway, it, it's pretty bad. You know, we don't like putting anything on, but I saw this uh, product. It's a worry-free brand, so it's worry-free slug and snail bait, and it says for organic gardening, and it's OMRI listed. Um, the the compound that it uses is ferric phosphate. Um, I looked up the MSDS on it and uh, some other PDF from the Department of Health and, or Department of Ag or something in Florida. <laughs> and it says that basically it's iron phosphate and that uh, it, when ingested by the slugs and snails, it causes a chemical reaction or something in the in the organism that uh, makes them stop feeding, and so they eventually will die. Um, it also goes on to say that um, anything not consumed by slugs and snails eventually uh, winds up part of the soil and is recycled by plants and other microorganisms. Um, normally, uh, or at least uh, last year, I'd have been fine with using this, but after watching the soil food web videos and uh, studying a little bit on uh, Elaine Ingram and the soil life, I really don't want to put anything on there that's going to destroy any kind of microorganism. So I was wondering what your take is on uh, worry-free slug and snail. Um, <laughs> it's been specifically stated that neem oil will not work on slugs and snails, so that's uh, that's not an option uh, for this. So. Anyway, I wanted to know what your take on that was, and I look forward to hearing your answer. Thanks. All right, so starting out, I want to say that if you were going to use something as a pesticide uh, against a slug, iron phosphate would probably be the most effective and the most benign on the total ecosystem other than the elimination of slugs. And it is relatively safe, Okay. So I'm not bashing it, and I'm not coming off as like some person that's so paranoid about toxins that I'm not going to breathe because there's about 60,000 toxins in the air, um, which I feel some people need to think about that before they worry about the fact that somebody ate off a paper plate or something. I'm just saying. But it doesn't just break down in the soil. That's not how it works. Both iron and phosphorus are quite persistent in soil, but they're also quite useful in soil. And basically what you have is a, is, a, is a component of fertilizer that's had other ingredients added to it so that the slugs will eat it, okay? Now, the phosphate, where's the phosphate come from? Well, it probably comes from acidic extraction 
uh, phosphorus rock or from byproducts from the petrochemical industry like most commercial fertilizers come from. This is not an organically derived product, although it may qualify to be used in or under organic label because technically it's no kind of a chemical or whatever. It is two natural elements bound up together, iron and phosphate. They're actually quite persistent in soil, meaning that they do stick around. They don't generally get uptake by plants and things like that until such time as the stuff you've learned from Dr. Ingram, there's enough exudates going on and enough interactions to actually break them down and make them available. So if you use this in large quantities, essentially what you're really putting on your property is phosphoric fertilizer that is in a non-bioavailable mode and becomes uh, something that persistently lifts phosphate levels to artificially high levels. It looks like there's more phosphorus there than there is because what's there is not available to the plant. Now, how safe is it for humans? It's actually used in food. Uh, it's used in things like hot dogs. It's generally considered completely safe to birds and, and things like that. Large amounts of it can be dangerous to dogs, though. But again, for a slug, how much of it would you really use? So you could use it, and I wouldn't beat you with a stick or a wet noodle or something for it and call you horrible and say that you've lined up with Monsanto or anything like that. I will tell you, though, that the people that make it are the same people that make products like Seven Dust. All right, These are not the most earth-friendly people in the world. Um, so still, you know, I'll use uh, blood meal that's made by miracle Grow as a nitrogen fertilizer, and I'm, I'm okay with it because it's just blood meal. So even though there's other things they make I wouldn't buy, and I don't really want to support them, if that's where I can get it right now, then I'll, I'll take it so you could use it. But I think there's a much simpler and far more organic solution to this, and it's beer. Yep, feed your slugs beer in a container that they have to crawl in to get it, and they drown in beer. That's a good way to go, I guess, if you're going to go, is to drown in beer. So... What you do is you can make various different types of slug traps, but the way you really want to do this is something that will hold liquid and not drain out. And it's better, to, in my opinion, to have something fairly deep that you bury in the ground until it's only about an inch above grade and then put something above it so it doesn't fill up with rainwater and stuff like that and the slugs can get into it. When they smell that beer, they will go in there and they will try to drink that beer and eat that beer. They love beer. And then they will fall in there, and then they will drown and die their little slug asses off. And if you set traps like this in your gardens for a while, you will drastically cut back on the slug population. And you will occasionally have to throw out some stale beer and throw out some dead slugs and replace it. But the good news with this is you've literally done no harm to your ecosystem, what have you. The beer that you end up dumping on the soil is good for your soil and good for the life in your soil. And the dead slugs, you can just throw them under the plants and let them rot. Or you can feed them to your chickens, beer-flavored slugs. Most chickens don't like slugs, by the way. Ducks like, duck, ducks like slugs and snails. Not real fans of uh, for chickens. I saw a video where a girl trained chickens to eat slugs. But um, in general, slugs and chickens are not really, they don't fit together that well. Not sure why. Um, so that's what I would do. If you want a, a trap that's already made, then I'll have a link to one on Amazon today that I think is about the best pre-made one that you can get. Um, I think they're about eight bucks. I recommend putting in like ten traps, so I don't know that I'd spend eighty bucks on slug traps. So again, what I would suggest is find some small container uh, that'll hold you know a quarter cup of beer or so that's cheap, and then 
you know, you can go to the garden center, and when you buy the, the flower pots that have holes on the bottoms that drain out, you can also buy a little saucer for them that you put on the bottom so when you put too much in there, it doesn't get everything wet. So you find the size that's a little bit bigger than the container. Those are dirt cheap, too. And then what you do is you bury your container, you put a couple rocks around it, make little entrance places for your slugs, set that thing on there, uh, fill it up with the beer first, again, about three-quarters of the way. Um, and then set a rock on top of it so it doesn't get blown off. And all your little slugs climb in there and die. And uh, check your traps, clean them out about twice a week, and keep doing that till your slug problem goes away. I'd rather do that than use a product like iron phosphate. But if I was going to use, if I said I don't want to do all that, I want the most benign thing that will kill slugs, I would use it and I would use it sparingly. I wouldn't coat it all over the place. I would actually set up like a little dish type thing I'm talking about here that you can make a trap with and put it in a little pile there and monitor it. And if it stops disappearing, just throw it away. So the only amount of it that ends up in the soil is the stuff that ends up in the slug. Because that may actually make the iron and the phosphate more bioavailable because it was inside the slug's digestive tract. So that, that And I would be very careful, though, using small amounts because you don't want dogs eating this stuff, and dogs just about eat any damn thing you put on the ground. So if your dog drinks a beer out of the beer trap, the dog might get a buzz. You could end up with a sick dog if they eat too much of this stuff. So for that reason alone, I'd go with the beer traps. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Ken Jensen of Deep Prepper Podcast. I wanted to call in and let you know about what the schools are hiding from parents. All right, more details. Um, our kids used to be homeschooled, and my wife got a little busy, so we had to put them in public school or government school for about a year or two. Well, um, there are tests that are being taken by these children, and what we just found out recently is that these children themselves are being told not to go home and tell their parents about the test, the details about the test. And they are also telling the teachers and the students that they cannot opt out of these tests, although the Tennessee law book says that they can opt out of these standardized tests. So I just thought that you would want to know about that. That is Tennessee uh, public schools, and you can opt out of these tests in many states, but they are not telling the teachers or the students that and they are definitely not even mentioning it to the parents. Thank you, Jack, for everything that you do. Goodbye. I believe it's almost every state in the nation. It may be, in fact, every state in the nation that these standardized tests are allowed to be opt out of. They absolutely are allowed to be opt out of. And I think parents should start opting their children out in mass. And I'm, I got a couple takeaways from this, and I'm, I promise you this isn't going to go into a rant, but there's, there's some real things that you need to think about with this. Number one, this means that every single one of you that has kids in government schools, remember they're not public schools, they're government schools. Albertsons is a public shopping center, right? public supermarket, right? Uh, a government school is a government school. It's not public. It's government-run institution, and it's controlled. Who can go there, when and why, and people are forced to go there, Okay. It's a government school. So if you have kids in government school, because that's your only alternative, and right now we're thinking about that ourselves with our grandchild. Okay. First thing you need to do is have a conversation with your children and say, not just at school, but especially at school, if anyone ever tells you anything and says you're not supposed to tell your parents about it, 
Unless it's a birthday present or something like that, Johnny, Tammy, you come tell me immediately. The minute someone tells your child that they're not supposed to tell you something, you need to know about it. That could be something really, really bad. It may not be, have anything to do with schools. We need to train our children in certain ways. Remember, training and discipline are different things. You can train a tree. You can't discipline a tree. Okay, So there's discipline with children and there's training. And part of their training needs to be, if A happens, you do B. Right? If someone gets hurt and there's no adult around and there's a phone, you dial 911. That's part of their training. Right? Okay, so one of their trainings needs to be, if anybody ever says, don't tell your parents this, unless it's something like a surprise for Christmas, because there's... You know, I can see your 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 brother telling his niece, right, your daughter, hey, I'm going to get dad your dad uh, uh, this thing for Christmas, don't, but I want you to see it, but don't tell him. All right, so that's okay. But anything that ain't like that, if someone tells you I'm not supposed to know, I need to know, and you need me to know, because there could be something wrong there, no matter where it comes from. By the way, if your teacher ever tells you not to tell me something, you need to tell me immediately. Don't tell your teacher you're going to tell me. You just come tell me what they said. Because I need to know anything you're being told at school. If you're told something by your scoutmaster and they tell me not to tell you not to tell me, anybody that's an authority over you, anybody who I trust you to go be with them, if they tell you not to tell me something, you tell me. That's number one. Have that conversation with your children. Number two, when you find out your child's been told not to tell you something like this, then you go to the person that told them not to tell you, and you say, not only did my child tell me, I'm glad they did, and you did something wrong. And we're not going to stop here. We're going to pursue this, and we're going to figure out how to make sure you don't do that to anybody else. By the way, in this instance, what I would do then is I would get out the PTA contact book and I would tell every single person that this person did this, told your kid this, and why it was wrong. And that your child was probably told the same thing. And you should go talk to your Johnnies and Tammies and Susies and Billies and ask them if they were told the same thing. And then that they should call this person that did it and tell them how pissed off they are about it. Okay? So that they know there's a consequence to this deceitful behavior. And next, I would say, there's actually good in all of this. This judge that I covered last week that threatened a woman with truancy court when truancy court didn't even exist and threatened to seize her child when he had no authority to do it just to try to make her put her kid back in school after a superintendent told her their big concern was when their child went out of school, the school got less money. And these standardized tests, it's about money. It's about the fact they see your kids as a dollar sign in a desk. That's the truth. And the good thing about this stuff starting to come out, even the sheep are starting to go, bah, bah, uh, what? Wait a minute. What? That's not right. We're starting to see this for what it is. This has always been a problem. This has always been a problem. When I was a kid in school, almost 30 years ago, this was a problem. Okay? But it's a much bigger problem today. And we didn't, we need to not go away. We need to not stand down in this. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here and do something I had no plans to do. I'm gonna play a poem for you guys, and I need you to start thinking this way about things like this. This is by Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. 
The wise men at their end no dark is right. Because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Now, as you might get by the last stanza of that poem, this was actually a plea to his father to resist going into the death. And this song has a lot of meaning for those that have to face death and to be strong all the way till the end. But it actually, to me, speaks larger. Um, there, I almost, I almost didn't play that version of it. I almost played a version of it from a, a, a movie called Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield in it, where he goes back to college as an adult to try to keep his son in college. It was from the 80s, and Rodney was a hilarious comedian. But he actually showed himself to be a pretty good actor in the scene where he was asked to read that uh, poem and it was he was being kind of raked over the coals for cheating and he was being given an oral exam to prove that he was actually had done the work he said he did and the teacher that had him do that he has this you know kind of fling going with and what have you and she throws it to him as a softball because she knows he'll remember it and will encourage him and she said at the end of him reading it and again it was pretty dramatic reading for a guy like Rodney Dangerfield she says what does that poem mean to you and he says it means I don't take shit from anybody. And we've become a nation of people that take shit from everybody. So with that segment, I leave you there. We need, especially as parents, when it comes to our children, we don't go gently. We don't walk away. We don't just let it be. When someone tells our children to not tell us something, what they actually are telling our children is to lie through a mission. If you have a child in a school where they've told your child not to come home and tell you about these tests, they've told your child to lie to you. And if they've told your teachers of your children or your teachers have told your children that they cannot opt out of this test or they've told you, then they've told your children again to lie to you and they've lied to you. Now, the teacher may not be lying with intent. They may believe this as well. But I don't think this is news anymore that we can opt out of these tests. So I'm going to put it to you this way. Why would you have your child take one of these tests? These tests we're talking about, these aren't ACTs or SATs. They're not going to help them get into college. They don't affect whether or not the child passes or fails. All they do is determine how much money your school gets from the money that was already stolen from you and the rest of the taxpayers. It's playing their game. There's no upside to your child taking these tests. There's no good that comes from it. So why would you ever allow it? That's my thought. Let's take another one. 
Another call. Hi, Jack. On a previous podcast, you talked about temporarily putting newly purchased trees in a raised bed until you were ready for transplanting them to their real spot. I'd like to know some details on your process and uh, you used to move them out. So here are the details. This is Rick from upstate New York in the hills of the Finger Lakes. We're officially zone six, but only because we're close to the lakes. We planted a bunch of trees early last spring in a raised bed and they took off, some of which are five feet tall now. The original beds were very loose, loamy soil, never walked on, about eight inches deep. These beds are in my backyard now, but we have 36 acres in the woods that we will be putting them on. I have about 100 trees now and probably 100 trees coming this spring. I also have a large pile of topsoil on the acreage that came from a recent driveway project of 1,400 feet long, so there's plenty there. It's a big and we've made a step terrace planter out of it for some of our newer trees and seedlings that we have. It's about seven feet deep at the top, so there's plenty of topsoil, so it should allow great growing conditions and easy extraction. We can also deer-proof this area a lot easier than the whole 36 acres, of course. We've got a double row of fencing around it, some reflective deterrents hung on the fence, even some Irish soap, and, of course, we pee all around the perimeter. The last thing is this is the third year of a very long project of us homesteading this property into retirement. We're 54 now. We want to keep things growing without stunting things um, so that we can get a kind of a step up on the growth process um, and so we can kind of eat these labor our fruits, so to speak. The house should be done in about three years for permanent residents when we'll have more time to be actively gardening and, and working the land. So we're kind of looking for the following. What's the best way to protect the roots and extracting them from the bed? Do you take your beds apart? Do you dig them out individually? Do you just carefully pull them out of the soil? When should I do this? I have fruit trees. I have oak. I have uh, black walnut. I have cherry. I've got a lot of different stuff, so maybe the answer is different for each one. And if we are careful, can we transplant the home-bedded trees into this terraced bed on the land? So that way, if we don't have time to do all of them this year, should I keep them in the one at home or try to get them to this other temporary spot? Any more details on the techniques you use when you buy, hold over, and plant these trees? Been a member for the TSP for a few years. Love the show, the new format, and thanks for all you do. What say you, Jack? Okay, so there's a lot going on there and a lot of different types of trees. So one of the things you run into if you let certain trees, let's take an oak, for instance, go too long in a grow-out bed, is oaks have a hugely deep taproot. And if you have a 10-foot oak tree, you probably have a 10-foot taproot, assuming that the ground allows for that level of penetration. And it is just not possible for you to extract all of the roots. So what you end up with, once a tree is a certain size, it's not you're no longer able to just extract the whole tree. You end up having to uncover roots, and you end up having to make a decision on a certain size of where to prune your roots off. And a tree with a taproot, when you prune a taproot, will never be the same again. It will not necessarily not be a good tree. It'll probably grow just fine, but it will never be as rigorous or as tough or as strong as it could be. And that's with oaks. The same thing with all these other trees. You know, that's the one out of everything you name that has the, the most aggressive taproot. So when, let's just kind of do this, break this down bit by bit. When do you dig up, remove, and replant trees? Uh, if you if you're doing them in you know soil beds that are like you're describing, 
you do it in the fall while the tree is dormant. And you really don't want to do it any other time. There are certain ways and certain methodologies that are kind of sophisticated where trees can be grown in things like gravel with more of a hydroponics type approach where you can just pop them out of the ground any time of year and it's almost like they're in a pot. And you get the full root system, okay? Um, that's probably beyond what you guys are going to do under your current situation. So the reason I say all of this is the first rule is we only do this when we have no real good alternative. The best alternative always is to take the tree as young as possible, as small as possible, and put it where it's going to be for the rest of its life. But it's not always practical. So I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm just saying that's how we need to be thinking so that we're not doing this just as a matter of course. We're doing it for a reason. Okay? So best practice is going to be to be as deep as possible with loose, friable, easy to remove, mixed soils, very, very light and fluffy stuff. Eight inches, a tree don't take long to go past eight inches. So you've got roots going all into the ground there, and you're going to have to dig these trees up, and it's too late to do it this year. So this is, you know, at this point, you're looking at next fall or this coming fall being when these trees would be ideally picked up out of the ground and put where they belong. As to whether you can just pull them out of the ground, you're going to have to see that for yourself, but my, my gut is no. Because you're going to be like a year and a half, two years in the ground with some of these trees at this point, and you're going to have to very carefully dig them up, and you're going to have to make a decision at certain points to, okay, this root's just not coming out. How much of it am I going to expose before I take a very sharp knife or a very sharp set of pruners and prune it off? And then it needs to go as quickly as possible from there to its final growing place. Okay? The best practices for developing this, 8-inch bed, you've done it, so it is what it is. Do the best you can with it. I'm more on the lines of having prepared soils in the neighborhood of 1 to 2 foot deep minimum for growing out of trees. Um, Bob Wells Nursery, um, their grow-out area that I've seen at their, at their primary retail nursery is not really raised beds, but it is all sand. It's 100% sand. And people think trees need lots of nutrient stuff to grow when they're young like that before they're producing. They don't need that much nutrient. That's one of the amazing things about trees. And we can always do that with some amending, a little compost on the surface, a little wood chips or something like that. But, you know, with sand, you know, we can, once that tree goes dormant, we can let that sand kind of dry out some, and it gets really easy to remove those trees. So sand, uh, compost, uh, perlite, things like that, those types of things that lighten soils, really, really the best practice for this type of thing is to be in, in, in that type of an environment. Now, you got to be careful with what kind of sand. Some sand really compacts very, very hard. But a lot of times what we can do is we can prepare a bed, especially if you have a piece of equipment like a backhoe or something like that. We can dig it up and really fluff it up, put our trees into it for a season, and then the next fall, go ahead and plant them out. This is something that a lot of people have to deal with because we want what we want, but we don't have the infrastructure in place to have it. So we want to get started because, well, it takes a long time for trees to grow. And we have to balance that with reality. So we have to ask ourselves, how much do we get out of doing this? 
Now, if we get a real opportunity to buy trees inexpensively, or we've grown the trees ourselves from seed, or we've done grafting on the rootstock, and we're really driving our costs down, then there might be a real advantage to taking this approach. If we're propagating these trees because we're going to dig them up as bare roots, prune them off, and sell them to people that need a well-started tree, then there's a lot of benefit from this approach. We're dealing with deer predation, and we have not yet set up things to the point where we can plant these trees and have them do well without the deer eating them to the ground, then it might be advised to do something like this. You need to be careful in the winter months that you don't have mouse problems as well because you're protecting your trees and you're creating a great little environment for these little rodents, right, that we need to, uh, to, to deal with. So keep an eye on that with your smaller trees especially. Uh, but that's your best overall practice. This is actually being a great one for me to maybe kick to Dick Ferguson for some additional comments. But that's how you have to think about it. You want to go as deep as possible with the loosest soil as possible. And absolutely, if you have young trees in a bed where it's really, really loose and friable, and when you go to pull that tree up, there's not that much resistance, and you can kind of just pop it out, that's great. But I think what you'll find with trees, as aggressive as they are with their roots, you're going to have to do some digging and some loosening to get them up out if they're anything beyond like a first-year seedling. And some trees, even as a first-year seedling, you could have a two-foot prepared bed and a first year seedlings two foot high and it's got roots three foot in the ground you know locust trees do stuff like that and that's why if you ever order locust trees if they're anything bigger than about six to eight inches uh when you get them you'll see that the roots have been pruned because they can only go so deep to get them out of the ground so that that's kind of the situation you're in right now so i would say you need to be planning toward transplanting these trees this fall The longer you leave them there, the larger the root systems are going to get, and the more you're going to have to prune off or damage to get them out of the ground. I'm sorry, it's not the best news in the world, but it's not terrible news. It's not like you've done something wrong. It's just that you, you need to think about what you've done and think about timing. Generally, if I'm putting trees into a bed like that, it's because I'm growing them from seed or they're little bitty seedlings, and I want to grow them out to the first fall, and then they're in the ground. Or I've gotten some kind of deal on trees, and I got to do something with them. I just don't have a place for them. Try to avoid that. Try to avoid that. Um, it happens, but try to avoid it because then you end up like, what do I really do with this? And sometimes we have buying opportunities that we spring a little bit too fast on, and uh, we would be just better be off, you know, buying them at a time when we're actually ready for them. All right, hope that helps. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Sam calling from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, with a question about how I should go about pricing the service of vegetable garden maintenance. Uh, some details. I was recently approached by an acquaintance of mine who knew that I'm an avid gardener, and he wanted me to build some raised bed boxes in his backyard for growing vegetables. Um, throughout the installation process, he has expressed the interest in having me come around on a regular basis to be his personal gardener. Uh, so I assume this would include tasks like starting seeds, transplanting, weeding, pest control, etc. Uh, now, I have a growth station uh, for starting seeds that I built for myself at home, and I produce my own compost using chickens, a la Jeff Lawton's chicken tractor on steroids concept. So I'm thinking transplants and compost are both products that I could potentially sell in addition to the installation and maintenance service. Now, I think this could be a pretty cool business if I could drum up sales, but... The problem is this is brand new territory for me, and I'm really not sure what the service would be worth or even what metric I should use to price it out. Uh, so what do you think? Should I charge an hourly rate plus extra for the homemade products? 
should I charge per visit, or maybe I should offer a flat monthly rate with all expenses included. Um, I, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think. Um, I don't expect this to replace my day job, but if I could uh, make some extra cash on the side and get other people excited about having fresh vegetables in their backyards, I just think that'd be awesome. Um, so, yeah, thanks a lot for everything you do. Um, I wouldn't have gotten to this point with this endeavor if not for your encouragement. All right, thanks, Jack. Okay, so you've asked the exact right question, but you're coming at it from the wrong angle because you're coming at it the way every new budding entrepreneur does. How do I determine what it's worth? Okay, in other words, what will the market value it at? Well, you don't get to make that determination. Markets make those determinations. And markets make those determinations in a variety of ways. And a mass commodity or a mass-produced service is a totally different way that a market makes that determination than a niche product makes that determination. A niche product is going to have an entirely different market value if it's in an area with a bunch of yuppies that think it's cool as opposed to being in a working man's blue-collar neighborhood that thinks it's interesting and would like to have it but the income level and the cool factor are different. Understand that. Okay, so that means that the markets are going to value you totally different based on where the markets are. The other thing that really influences market value is how effectively the product or service is sold and marketed. So we can see that, and some people will pay $100 for a shirt because it says freaking FUBU or something like that on it, and other people know they can buy a shirt just like that at Walmart for $10, and they'll buy the $10 shirt, and some people buy the $100 shirt, and they really do the same thing the same way. The difference is the marketing of a company like FUBU is directed at People that will spend that, not necessarily have more money, but are willing to spend more money on a brand that they think is cool. Okay? So, that's how the market's going to set value. It's going to be a determination based on a general base value of what you're doing, and then it's going to be influenced by the type of people you're marketing to, the effectiveness of your marketing, and how well you're able to sell the service as being worth what you say you want. Okay? And that's also how market value gets set. When you set a price, especially when there's not a lot of people competing with you, that becomes a market rate. Then it's down to can you get somebody to pay it. You have to have your thinking this way. And it'll all make sense here in just a second if it's not yet. So how do I set a price? I set a price on something new the exact same way every time. That's what I said at the beginning of the intro segment. This has nothing to do with gardening at all. That has nothing to do with compost. This has to do with business. So if I have a service that I want to market to a customer who's expressed an interest in it, the first thing I'm going to do is sit down and develop a realistic timeline as to how many hours of labor that I'm going to put into this, and then I'm going to multiply that by 1.15. And if you're brand new, probably 1.2 especially if you have no one to compete with. That means you've underestimated your hours by 15 to 20%. So if you want to ever, when you want to figure out what something is, if it had a 10% tax on it, you don't have to figure 10% and add it back. You just multiply 1.1. Okay? You want to figure out what it is at 5% tax, 1.05. Okay? Good to know when you're making up Excel spreadsheets for shit like this. Okay? So you can plug your number and you have an automatic fudge factor toward the high side built into your formula in Excel. That way you can't forget to do it, and that way you never 
you never cheapen yourself. Because you might come back and change that number later when you're sure of it. You might take that fudge factor out of it. Okay? Put that in at front. So we figure out how much time it actually takes to do this. Take our best guess if we don't know. Put a fudge factor in there. Okay? Then we're going to take all our materials. And what we want to do is come up with the most important number that most entrepreneurs never honestly come up with, especially in their first ventures. It's called COGS. COGS. Is that like you know Spracely Sprockets and Cogswell COGS and the Jetsons? No. COGS is cost of goods sold. What does it cost me to deliver that service? So I determine that primarily with materials, and then I set a value to my time, and then that gives me a total. I have to imagine... In labor, in, in, in labor, I'm either paying myself or I'm paying somebody else. So I want to maintain a 15 to 20% margin on labor. That way, if I ever hire someone to expand, I can still earn 15 to 20% on their labor. And that's a minimum. Generally, in, in gross margins, I'm looking for 40% minimum on labor. And that's a, that's a total burden labor rate. But this is too small to worry about that yet. So... And you say, well, I don't have that right now, and it would just be me. You've got to think this way. Because you are trying to earn over for yourself because you're running a business and you're acting as the sole employee at the same time. So you need to see these different income streams being viable there. When you come up with that number, then that is your, your cost. And then you put a margin on it of whatever you think you need to make in margin to be profitable. So you put a margin on all your materials beyond their cost. And you're going to have to factor, like you can say you make compost. Well, how many hours do you have into that? What's your labor rate you've assigned yourself? Then you actually see the compost for the real cost. And it wouldn't matter if you were whittling matchsticks. I don't care what it is. You have time into the material that you're now selling. That has to go in as a part of the cost of that material. And then you need to put a margin on top of it. And in the end, you'll come up with a number. A day rate, an hourly rate, a monthly rate, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You're going to come up with a number. That is the number you need to sell at. But, Jack, you said the market will set the rate. To a degree, it will. But here's the reality. If the market sets a rate significantly lower than the number you've come up with, what that tells you is you do not have a valid business. You can't afford to be in that business. In fact, the more success you have in that business, the faster you will go bankrupt. Now, people don't want to do this because they don't want their, their little idea to end up being seen as not valid. But you have to do this exercise. And you don't have to do it in Excel and get all fancy like I do. You can write this down. This is small enough. You can certainly take a spiral notebook, open it up, start plugging numbers away, do some work with a calculator app on your iPhone, and figure out this basic number. But this number doesn't need to be based on what it's worth. It needs to be based on what it costs plus a profit. Now, if you end up in a place where the market rate is significantly different than your sell point and you're significantly over the market rate and there are competitors doing it, now we need to do a couple things. One, we need to go back and look at leaning out our costs. Are we overestimating our expenses? Probably not. Probably we're underestimating them the first time around, but check it out. Maybe you are. Is there a, is there a, a more cost-effective way to do this? And then we say to ourselves, if I did this more cost-effectively, what would I sacrifice in my end product? Check this out. You're developing your marketing right now.
what you have to do to your market when you go out with a rate that's 20%, 30% higher than your market would expect is justify it. So what you do is you, you develop things as a salesperson, and when you talk to a customer, a prospective customer, we call those a prospect, and they say, well, this seems a bit high, you say, well, let me explain to you what I do. Let me explain to you why it costs what it does. And then you tell me which of these things you would have me remove so that I could lower my cost. And what generally happens is your prospective customer says, well, I don't want any of those things to go away. And you say, then this has to be the price. Now you've just sold them. Now, whether they have the financial wherewithal to actually purchase is something you don't control in that individual conversation. But you've convinced them, you've demonstrated to them why you're charging this amount of money. If you want me to do this for you every week, every month, every day, whatever that frequency is, then obviously if I'm not profitable, it's not worth my time, and I'm not going to be here very long, and I'm going to go away, and you're going to think you have a solution, and you no longer do. So this comes to the next thing. Now we develop marketing that does that for us in advance, so we don't have to have a lot of those conversations. We sell the value of the product in a brochure, in a website, in a video, on social media, whatever it is. And then every time we, in this instance, let's say we harvested a bunch of stuff for our customer and we tweet that out, somehow we tie it back to our sales and marketing process where our additional customers go look at that and say, wow, that's why that looks so good. That's why that works so good. If I want that, I, I would expect that I'm going to pay more than you know some guy that comes and mows my grass. Because you certainly can't do that for this price. Okay? And that's, that's, again, this has nothing to do with the gardening. This is, this is business 101 right here. And it's, it's business that they don't really teach in college. But this is real entrepreneurial business. This is how you actually do these things. So then we get into the points of, okay, my rate is at a premium because I produce a premium product. Good. If you're not producing a premium product and selling at a premium as a small business person, you're doing it wrong. You're in the you're in the mass market where people operate at one and two percent margins and make billions of dollars. You can't operate on a margin like that. You can't compete on a margin like that. So you have to get in a premium market. So then the next thing you do is where are my premium customers? So what you do control is your marketing, your sales process, and who you direct it at. So if I'm in a business like you're talking about, and over here is a nice little suburb, a bunch of blue-collar people, most people that have a garden are taking care of their stuff themselves, most people that have their grass cut, cut it themselves. There's no, but, there's no trucks ever in the front, you know, Mark's Landscaping doing it. They're self-directed people that do all their own shit, and, they, and I look at the cars and they're all 5, 10 years old or older, and I'm, you see what people start saying is, oh, you're putting those people down. No, I'm not. I'm that person. Right? I look like that. I actually will hire people at a premium to do certain things because I don't want to do it. But in general, I fit that mold. And if I'm the exception, so we're playing the averages and the odds here. I don't want to direct my marketing at that neighborhood. If I had a different product, I might absolutely select that demographic to market to. There's things they will pay a premium for, but it ain't this. So when I, when I find a neighborhood where there's a bunch of Priuses, so people are concerned about the environment. The houses look a little bit more expensive, and the cars that aren't Priuses are expensive cars. And all the lawns are nicely maintained on the front side, but yet there's enough space in the backyard, and there's some trees and stuff going on back there that don't look like you know, the Stepford Wives housing. 
They look like there's an opportunity to market this type of thing. I'm going to select that market demographic. And again, this is not about gardening. That's how we do this with anything. For instance, I tried to get my son really hipped up on doing above-ground pool cleaning because it's always hard to find someone to do that, and there's a lot of above-ground pools around here. He just don't hustle hard enough. But if he was hustling, what he would do is just get on Google Earth and start looking at different neighborhoods around him. And you know who you market to, the people that you look down and you see a neighborhood, and there's 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 a hundred pools in this general neighborhood, and like you can tell by looking online which ones are above ground. You have a twenty thirty above ground pools. You make a list of all those houses, and you go to those houses and say, "Does anybody maintain your pool for you? Do you ever get tired of maintaining your pool? Here's my business card. Here's my brochure. I clean pools for X amount. I can do it weekly or every two weeks." If you'd like someone to take this chore off your hands, I can do that for you. I work with, fill in the blank, you know, these two or three supply places up the road. I have water testing done, everything. Those guys know me up there. I talk to them all the time. Uh, so you know that I've been in business for X number of years, whatever it is. And you market to the demographic. You don't go to a house that has no pool and say, would you like me to clean your above ground pool? Because they're going to look at you like you're being an idiot, because you are. So you don't go to a place where people don't have money and ask to sell a premium product. And, and this is, again, it's not about snobbery. It's about surviving as a small business person. You find the demographic. You define the cost to yourself. You, have, you determine the margin that makes it worth doing. And then you market the price based on its benefits and features to the demographic that matches what you're doing. Now, I would love to know why this isn't taught in schools at the high school level. Any 15-year-old can understand what I just said if they're motivated enough and want to. I'd like to know why business classes in freshman college don't learn this. By God's sakes, by then you should be. Why don't we do this? Because it empowers entrepreneurs versus develops employees. That's why. It creates freedom and independence and liberty. Because the more people that do it, the more people that are earning a premium income, and therefore more people can actually afford to buy premium products and services. And we actually start developing a network of independent business people doing business with each other instead of the giant corporate apparatuses. So, of course, they don't teach this. Because it's a directly counter to their system. Because if enough of this was done, let me tell you about what would happen. Eventually... There'd be a lot less people doing business in the mass market and a lot more people doing business with people they know on this type of a level and more and more people, because they were becoming empowered and exchanging value for value, would have more and more resources to actually do business with others. And we'd build these local economies that I'm talking about all the time. This is reality. This is fundamental reality. You can't price a product based on what you think it's worth You have to price a product based on what it costs plus the margin necessary to make it worth producing or delivering. And then you have to explain to the market through your marketing and sales why it's worth what you say it is. Some of you have business degrees that are going, man, why? 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 Why did I spend money to go to college and not be told this? You know where you do learn this? When you work for those giant corporations and you get into management level positions and you have to, that's where you learn this. Or when you build your own business and sooner or later you figure it the F out. I kind of did both. 
But this, this, is, this is the reality of business. So with that, kind of a heavy topic to finish on. Let's uh, remind you about a couple things before we get to our closing song. Uh, first of all, if you want to do business with other members of the TSP community, and that's the kind of thing we're talking about right here, folks, doing business with each other, then get to the TSP business directory and see if there's someone there that does the type of thing that you need. And if you do something cool and you want other members of our community to know, consider being listed there. It's at tspbiz.com, which is just a page on the, the Survival Podcast website. Today's featured member is Liberty Fox Defense. They provide concealed carry classes in Utah and offer custom pistol holsters on sale on their website. You can go to libertydefense.com to learn more. So that's another example of someone out there that's figured out how to price their services because they're still in business. And you know when someone doesn't, they don't stay in business very long. Uh, next up, if you'd like to support the work I do, there's a couple ways you can do that. The best way, become a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more and about how to do that. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders like law enforcement officers, uh, paramedics, firefighters, etc. All you guys qualify for a discount if you email me before, not after you join. Just put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Send that to Jack at the Survival Podcast and dot com, and uh, I will hook you up with that discount. Everybody else, it's really a great deal. Comes out to about eighteen point three cents an episode, and you'll get discounts to great companies doing great things that you're probably going to spend money on anyway. So your membership pays for itself. There's a business lesson in that one as well. Um, and last, the other way you can help support this show is when you are shopping at the giant conglomerate that is Amazon.com. Just go to TSPAZ.com first. TSPAZ.com. You'll type less letters. You'll end up on the same website. You'll spend the same money, but you'll support the work we do uh, through our Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't make that one easier if I tried. So what is the song of the day today? This is, again, uh, Jimmy Buffett. And uh, Oh, real quick, I, I didn't say this when I played the poem. The reason I played the version of, of, um, uh, of that poem that I did, uh, Do Not Go Gently Into That Good Night by Dylan Thomas, that was actually Dylan Thomas reading his own poem. I, I should have told you that when I played it. Anyway, so back to a more modern musical poet, Jimmy Buffett. Um, this song is called Tin Cup Chalice. Tin Cup Chalice. And I chose it for a reason today. You know, I, I did a, an ending where I talked a lot about business concepts and developing a strong business that can produce wealth and things like that. Well, there's another fundamental reality to life on this planet when it comes to economics. It's not how much money you earn. It's how much you keep. And one way we can keep more of our money, other than not paying too much taxes by running a business of our own so that we learn the tax code and get a good accountant and everything and actually take a lot of things that most people just consider um, the cost of living and turn them into expenses which are deductible that's one way but another way is to learn how to be happy without spending tons of money that's in some ways that's what this song's about a tin cup with a fill uh, with a tin cup for a chalice fill it up with sweet wet red wine and chewing on a honeysuckle vine Happiness and simplicity. Now he's sitting on a really, really nice beach, right, when he writes this song. But to me, there is that, that overlying message with this song that we can create happiness and joy and freedom and so many things that are high quality in our lives without buying another plastic thing. And we should work on doing that. I have a question that I sent out to an expert council member today about dealing with depression. I think a lot of the reason that so many Americans are depressed today is they've, they've forgotten how to be happy. 
How depressing is that? That a lot of times, to me, a way to solve depression is to get up and do something, but the depressed person feels so depressed they don't want to get up and do it. It's kind of a catch-22, but it doesn't have to be. We need to remember how to be happy. We need to be teaching our children how to be happy without buying them another piece of crap. We need to teach them not just about investing and saving, but actually joy. You want a survival topic? Look at how many people kill themselves every year in this country. And look how many people that don't kill themselves destroy their own lives. And mostly, why? They can't be happy. How many marriages end? Because both partners just look at it and realize, we're not happy anymore. And so, since I'm not happy and I used to be, it must be your fault. And since you're not happy and you used to be, it must be my fault. Never thinking that both of you could be separated long ago and still be unhappy. Fix things. And learning how to have real joy is a big part of fixing things like that. Maybe one of the most important things you can ever do for yourself. And it's certainly one of the most important things you can do for your kids. Be teaching your kids how to be happy without a phone in their hand. Be teaching your kids how to be happy without so many toys you can't see the floor of their bedroom anymore. Teach them to be happy in ways that will serve them for the rest of their life. Keep the family unit strong. Keep yourself strong. Keep your mind, body, and spirit strong. And with that, learn to love and enjoy life in every way that you can including with a 10-cup chalice. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
my strange proposal Get that packer up And let's move Yeah, with a tin cup for a chap.